his days at the Sanford GF to be. And um, we, we, uh, we, we didn't bring him on just because he has a very well known book called Idea Flow, uh, which is also written with uh, ex-COO of Patagonia, um, Perry Cleveland. But uh, we are really excited to bring Jeremy on today just because I feel like anyone in the realm of startups and entrepreneurship, it all starts with an idea just because, um, you know, that's the start of anything. It's <laughs> an idea yeah. to do something. And then yeah. there's all this back. Uh, and I would work. say furthermore, by the way, Dan, it's the only way to continue. You know, it, it, your problems are creeping up every day. And creativity is really just the art of solving problems. That's the, that's innovation, the craft of problem solving. And so it's not just the original idea where you need creativity, but every, you know, get a supply chain crisis. What do you need? Innovation. You got an employee management issue. What do you need? You need innovation. You've got a big change in the marketplace. What do you need? You need innovation. So far from this just being about inception, it's actually really about sustaining and amplifying the work you're doing wherever it is you might be doing it. Very fascinating. Um, I guess like Earl, do you have, you have something quick to say? Just, I know like uh, you've known Jeremy for a while, just get some quick words. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I mean, Jeremy has been an inspiration, uh, you know, for me for a while um, because, you know, I mean, I know Jeremy, you know, I, I was always like, you know, uh, inspired where he continued, uh, you know, to be in the Stanford community in the D school, you know, and so like, wow, you know, it'd be great to, you know, to, to, to do that as well. And, you know, I think a lot of us kind of found inspiration in, in his journey and especially now culminating with the book. I think we're just so excited for, you know, the contributions he has before, but especially now kind of amplifying that to the world with the book. So thanks again, Jeremy. It's been a special, it's going to be a very special episode for our podcast. So thank you. No, it's my pleasure. I, I feel self-conscious of the fact that I could never escape the gravitational pull of Stanford, you know, Earl and all of our other classmates all went on and I, I somehow stuck around for the last 13 years. So I don't know if that's a, success or or what but uh i it certainly afforded me a unique perspective in the portfolio that's for sure i get you know that's an interesting point jeremy i think like you know when you were just talking about being a student at the gsb um were you like interested naturally by design or innovation or like how did you know you get sucked into <laughs> not not leaving <laughs> which is yeah sucked into too. the it sucked in is the perfect word. Um, I wasn't, I never knew about teaching, you know, as a profession for sure, which is what I've been doing the last 13 years. And I didn't know much about startups. I had, um, I had spent a summer when I was in college, I studied finance at the university of Texas Hookham, And I had started a, uh, or, or contributed to the formation of an incubator in Bolivia. And so I knew a little bit about entrepreneurship from a, uh, from a particular perspective, but I didn't know much. And at the time I was actually more interested in this notion of economic development. So I spent a summer in Zambia as well, working in an AIDS orphanage. And when Earl and I were in business school, I, I had been working at a management consulting firm and my kind of grand plan was work there for a couple of years, get them to pay for my business school and then go on to do economic development. And so in the summer between our years in business school, whereas Earl and most, most of our classmates were doing things like finding the job that they're going to do for the rest of their life. For me, I already knew what I was going to do, you know, at the, um, at the firm, at the consulting firm, I was working for BCG. So I already knew um, what I was going to do, but I had this kind of gimme summer, so to speak. So I ended up, because the summer didn't bear the burden of the rest of my life, like it does for a lot of folks. So I worked at a startup in India. 
So I'd had this experience in Bolivia, I'd had the experience in Zambia, and then going to India and working in a startup environment, it didn't turn me on to teaching or entrepreneurship per se, it turned me on to a new way of solving problems called design thinking. Because it was there in Noida, India, where I started observing design teams creating products and crafting solutions for folks living in poverty. And I was blown away. I mean, certainly by the impact we were having, I was loving it, but really blown away by the way in which they were solving problems. And coming from a, a finance background, I'm very comfortable with the spreadsheet and pivot tables and stuff like that. And to see so many different tools when I came back to Stanford that second year, I came back with a real passion to learn more about this new way of solving problems that was called design thinking. Very interesting. Did you find yourself like having to learn how to use like Sketch or what was it back in the day, like Photoshop or like uh, any of those tools at the same time? No, no, no. I mean, that that is those are all super valuable. And learning those tools will will increase your fluency, certainly considerably. But it's not I, I would I would. Uh, push back a little bit on conventional definitions of design, that it's about illustrator or it's about beautiful things or aesthetics. It's fundamentally a mindset or an orientation towards problems. Mm-hmm. It's an orientation to seek input, right? My wife's a fashion designer, you know, and she's really good at illustrator and Photoshop and all that stuff, right? But to become a designer like her, it's not, I need to learn, you know, pattern making and, and textiles and sewing. It's that I need, one of the things that I learned from her is, Fashion designers go into the world for inspiration. You know where the fashion designers, you know, who are designing next year's collections are, or I guess they design about 18 months out. You know where they are right now? I don't know. They're on, they're on the streets. They're looking <laughs> at what, at what that it's like the bleeding edge, right? As, as someone said, the future's already here, but it's unevenly distributed. And where designers are getting inspiration is out in the world where people are already doing the things that other people are going to do in the future. And that, that instinct to go out and seek inspiration, to seek fresh input, that's a design impulse. And so, you know, when you said you, you come back to learn about PowerPoint or, you know, um, Illustrator, Photoshop, whatever, less about that and more about what are the tools for seeking new input to my thinking that drive fresh outputs of my thinking? And, you know, what Michelle did, you know, as a, as a fashion designer is one way of doing it. At the D school, we teach a lot about is human centeredness and, and what we call empathy, right? So, or, or really caring about the things that people care about and, and putting the human being that you're designing for at the center of your problem solving. But all that, if you kind of, if you kind of uh, level up a layer from the specific tool is actually all about stimulating your thinking. If you think from the perspective of creativity, imagination is fueled by novel inputs. And so if you become aware of that, then you say, okay, if I need fresh thinking, then what I need is new input. And it's that kind of instinct that really is the design orientation to problem solving that I didn't know anything about. And it wasn't really being taught in my, certainly in my finance background, but also even in management consulting, or sorry, in management education in general at the time. Wow, that's quite deep. Um, (laughs) I have a friend, he's a product designer and we never you know he does speak a little bit about um understanding users and all the stuff that goes into all the research that comes into before you do a prototype and all the wireframes and all that stuff i'm not a designer at all but i just find this field fascinating because um design is something we interact with like all the time right just whether it's the phone or the computer um for you jeremy like what exactly fascinates you about the space um whether it's you know learning about uh 
people in a unique way or just how to cater to their needs and fix problems like that? Is that, is that what appeals to you most or is it just um, innovation because it's such no, a I, special I, thing? For me, I think there is a, there's a real dopamine hit, that moment where you go, you know, like, you know, like that moment in the matrix where Keanu Reeves says, I know Kung Fu. <laughs> it's like, there are these moments where you conceive of something and you go, where did that come from? And that's, that's the kind of, it's, it's not innovation. Ultimately innovation is, is not just invention or discovery, but also implementation, but it's the kernel. It's the beginning. And I would say, I got, if for lack of a better word, I got addicted to that feeling of, I know Kung Fu. Something occurred to me because of a particular set of problems or needs, or, you know, whether it's from a student perspective or from a client perspective with, you know, uh, professional development, which I've been doing, whatever it may be, all of a sudden, there is, there is something that could be in the world that was not before. And it's because I embarked on this journey. That is really what was delightful to me. And that's what I've been trying to teach others how to do is, you know, most people, if you think about breakthroughs, uh-huh. where does a breakthrough come from? You know, for most people, it's more like a break in. It catches them <laughs> off guard. They're, you know, they're, where did that come from? You know, I, I, I put my hands up, right? Well, I happen to be of the school of thought that you one can perpetrate a breakthrough. You don't have to be the victim of a breakthrough. You can actually seek Create it out. One. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like manifesting. Is that what you're kind of getting along with? Or is that well, yeah, I wouldn't. I, I think manifesting is still kind of frou-frou, you know, uh-huh. like, I mean, I don't know, but like the whole Web3, like I'm a manifest it. It's like, that's great. You know, by all means, that feels a little too magical. Methods beat magic every day. And what I've learned is there is a method to the seeming magic of innovation. Mm-hmm. I've actually got the idea flow website right here. And it says uh, what you just said, great ideas, um, methods, not magic. Uh, when, when, you know, like entrepreneurs have these ideas for startups um, and you ask them like, how did they, like in the show, we get a lot of people who like, how did you get this idea? And like, they're like, oh, you know, I was one time in my life where um you know, I had the same problem where I couldn't afford something. So I created a company that would help people afford something. Um, but I guess like, you know, everybody has a different reason for starting a company, whether it's just they love being an entrepreneur or they want to make money or they want to, you know, there's so many reasons. They love what they do. So they continue to pursue it. Um, for you, Jeremy, I guess like with like either entrepreneurs you've seen or people in the D school, what a what do you think catalyzes these ideas most of the time? Or do you think it's just their environment or do you help them? No, you know, I think for a lot of people, there's a sense of uh, a calling, you know, Mm -hmm. there's a problem that's got to be solved. And what we see the most successful entrepreneurs are those who have fallen in love with a problem, not that they fall in love with a particular solution, but that this problem really matters to them. And those are the ones who ultimately end up succeeding and breaking through. And you can see this, you know, all, all throughout history. One of my favorite examples, I think we mentioned him in the book, but Bill Bowerman, you know, there's like this classic, guy, right? I, he's yeah. Nike, a co-founder of Nike with Phil Knight. He was Oregon's track and field coach. And he has this, one of the most classic kind of eureka moments of, you know, the, of modern history where he's sitting at the kitchen table, his wife, Barbara is making waffles. And 
he's just kind of gazing absentmindedly into the waffle iron and he thinks I should pour polyurethane into that. What is and polyurethane mm, for? for it's, that's like a liquid, right? It's the sole of a shoe. Mm. It's like plastic, like a rubber plastic or something, right? Exactly. Yeah. I'm joking when I say he should pour polyurethane. But my point is he, when he was watching his wife make waffles, thought that's how I make a better shoe. And he took his wife's waffle iron into the garage and ruined it by pouring polyurethane. <laughs> I mean, classically, right? But the point is that's actually what became the Nike trainer. Uh, pre previous to that, they were basically kind of a, you know, a import exporter of Onitsuka. That's it. Mm -hmm. When Bowerman made the waffle trainer, that's the beginning of athleisure. There's no Lululemon without that moment with the waffle maker. Okay. There's no, everything that's come along. I mean, maybe somebody else, if you think of the butterfly effect would have done it elsewhere. Right. But Bill Bowerman did it. We go, okay. So if I'm, if I want to be an inventor, or I want to be an entrepreneur. Are you telling me I need to gaze into kitchen appliances? Is that like <laughs> the takeaway here? And by the way, as an aside, partially, I'm going to say no, but partially yes, because Steve Jobs was known to go through the, the aisles of Macy's when he was stuck on a problem. Famously, he didn't like the design of the original Mac computer. And he went to Macy's, found a Cuisinart mixer, bought it and brought it back to the design team. And he goes, it's supposed to look like this, right? So which is to say, perhaps yes, kitchen appliances do hold the key to all invention problems. But Generally speaking, the answer is no, I'm not advocating for looking into a, longingly into a kitchen appliance. What I'm advocating actually is the obsessive pursuit that characterized the months that preceded the waffle iron moment. And what a lot of people don't know, a lot of people know about Bill Bowerman's waffle iron moment, right? Because it's famous. Mm -hmm. What mm -hmm. they don't know is he was constantly tinkering with his athlete's shoes, always. You know, Phil Knight tells the story in Shoe Dog, which is a great book. I highly recommend it for any entrepreneur. It will it will scare entrepreneurship out of anyone who's not destined for it. Okay, but in the book, one thing that Knight says is when he was a he was an athlete at Oregon under Bowerman as the coach, right. and uh, Bowerman coached the Olympic team. He coached the Oregon track and field team. And Phil Knight tells a story about how he would go into the locker room and you'd open your locker, you didn't know. If you were like what you're going to find, because Bowerman was always opening students' lockers and tinkering and cutting pieces off their shoes and adding things. And Phil Knight joked, you didn't know whether you were going to win the race or hobble off the track bleeding because of all the adjustments that Bowerman was making. And Bowerman, in fact, would keep two notebooks at the end of every race. He had one notebook that was about his athlete's performance. Mm -hmm. He had another notebook that was about his experiments performance. And my point is, Going back to your question of like what ties great entrepreneurs together or what ties these ahas together using the Bowerman example, the reason the waffle iron speaks to the founder or the reason the waffle iron speaks to Bill Bowerman and the reason that a particular point of inspiration speaks to a founder at a particularly memorable or famous point in their journey sure. is actually because of the obsession that precedes it. Bill Bowerman wanted to win races. That's why the waffle iron spoke to him. And there's a lot of entrepreneurs or would-be entrepreneurs who are just looking around for an idea, but they don't actually have a problem they want to solve. I actually wrote a blog post just today or published <laughs> yesterday, which is yeah. look for problems. If you want to innovate, if you want to be an entrepreneur, look for problems. There's a famous assignment at Stanford we've been giving since the 1960s that's called keep a bug list. Uh-huh. 
like which uh, like code is that or is it, was it no no, no this is like this a real is dec <laughs> dec decades before computer programming entered common parlance this is write down a list of things that bug you mm. what bothers you those right. are the seeds oh, of innovation oh. right and that's really what uh, what an inventive entrepreneurially minded individual is doing is they're cultivating an awareness of problems to be solved i hear you yeah yeah i think that that's very relevant. I feel like, yeah, that's a, a very well said point. Yeah. I guess Jeremy is, 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 is kind of you're advocating for someone to get kind of this notion of like getting exposed to different disciplines in order to find innovation, because this is somewhat also counter cyclical to some other people saying that, you know, to, in order to find really uh, yeah, either the problem or a solution for a particular industry, you kind of have to be an expert in it, right? I mean, What's your thoughts on that? Because let's say if you're in banking, right? Like, you know, especially for hiring, if you think about hiring, like people want to hire someone kind of, you know, 20 years of experience of the same industry, right? For senior roles. So kind of are you advocating to say that, you know, actually for, you know, for, to, for breakthrough ideas in, in industries, you kind of have to get either someone with multidiscipline experience or you yourself be exposed to many different disciplines. Well, there's Earl, this is a great question. And there's a couple of components that I'd like to address independently. One is experience or expertise. And I want to set that aside for a uh -huh. second. Um, and we can come back to that in a minute because there's actually some really interesting research there. The But part of what you're saying is, and you aren't saying it this way, because if you said it this way, then you would immediately go, well, I don't believe that. But almost implicit in what you're saying is you can't really innovate until you spend a, until you have a really, really deep experience, decades of experience in a field. And we know that's not true. Just if you just look at the number of folks who are starting companies and they're like, look at the Collison brothers, founders of Stripe, right? They were what, 22 mm -hmm. years old. They didn't have decades of experience and yet they're able to revolutionize a field. Um, so it's not the decades of experience that matter. It is the depth of understanding you have of a problem. But I don't think sometimes um, depth of experience is uh, correlates to depth of understanding of a problem. Sometimes it doesn't. And it's not always true that more deep experience is going to yield deeper understanding of a problem. Right. So, which is to say, you don't need more experience before you start understanding problems more deeply. And in fact, sometimes on some entrepreneurs become the world expert in a particular problem in a very short period of time because they're laser focused. Right. And somebody who say bank, you know, using banking as an example, right. Or you, you mentioned that, right. Um, somebody who's been in banking for 30 years, their attention is spread spectacularly thin across a number of initiatives and projects and efforts and employees and whatever, right? And an entrepreneur who is totally focused on compliance, you know, blockchain compliance protocols and lives and breathes it can rapidly kind of run up the learning curve to potentially rival or surpass someone who's been quote unquote in the finance industry for a long time. Right. So, sure, sure. Mm, so mm. I just want to say experience doesn't correlate necessarily, it can, but it doesn't necessarily correlate to depth of understanding of a problem. The other kind of thing that I wanted to mention there is on, as I mentioned, or as I said, it's on this idea of experience, sometimes experience is a liability. And the reason I say that is because the world is changing 
Technology is changing and experience is a knowledge of what has worked in the past. But increasingly, familiarity with what's worked in the past has very little bearing on what might work in the future. Classic example, one of my favorite examples, uh, a young engineer named Dennis Overhauser was working at a place called Lockheed Martin's Skunk Works facility. Okay. I think this is chapter one of the book, right? I don't know. (laughs) Well, you, okay. Well, let's, let's do a little pop quiz, Dan. You tell me and then I'll tell you whether it is. Oh, okay. Or was this a YouTube video that I was researching? Awesome. Oh, <laughs> was it a YouTube on. video, maybe? <laughs> no, but I mean, the, the short of it, I'm just teasing you, Dan. But the mm-hmm. short of it is Dennis Overhauser was a young guy uh, at Lockheed in the Skunk Works division. And he stumbled across a Russian uh, math paper, which he believed held the keys to designing a aircraft with a lower radar signature than had ever been created. So he used this formula to, as the input to, you know, it took months to kind of get the design outputs, but he figured out an output that looked unlike any aircraft that had ever flown before. They, um, when he presented the idea for this lower aircraft, or they called it stealth, when he presented the idea for the stealth bomber, the experienced aeronautics experts at Lockheed Martin, the world-renowned aeronautics experts, joked he should be burned at the stake this is how blasphemous he's being you know what they called Mm. the stealth bomber at lockheed martin they called it the hopeless diamond oh wow because they (laughs) said there's no way it can't fly (laughs) the thing can't fly right and and if you if you if you look at a point in time if you look back 30 years that statement is true it's it's unstable on all three axes it's impossible to fly except Advances in computers enabled something that was unstable on all axes to fly, right? So it's a great example of a young person being willing to entertain a uh, unconventional counterintuitive possibility that more experienced people dismiss because of old irrelevant rules. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, that's, 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 that's crazy, right? I mean, I think we're, we're all held back with, well, not held back, but we, we built on an experience that sometimes we over we over index on our previous experience for what could be done in the future. Uh, maybe Jeremy, I'd, I'd love to kind of turn the page a little bit on like the idea of idea flow. When you come up with the concept that you wanted to write the book based on all your experiences you know for your personal experiences and and the things that you learned in the d school like what was the inspiration of the book because i think a lot of our audience also you know uh, some of them are interested in just the journey of an author and how you even thought about it yeah sure you know I would say the, the the idea of a book is something that kind of is is probably knocking around the back of a lot of people's minds. How do you know, I kind of would like to write a book, you know, that could kind of be fun or what would I write a book about? Or, you know, that sort of thing. Or, you know, if you're in a position like mine where, you know, for 13 years, I've been teaching executives and grad students, people start going, you should write a book, you know. But the question is, does the world really need another innovation book or another creativity book? You know, for for and for a long time, I thought, no. I'm the guy who's reading the books on this stuff. You know, it's like, um, 
and and there's a lot i haven't finished reading all the books on creativity and innovation why why would i possibly be you know uh credible in writing a book right and yet over time what you find or what i would say what i found and what my co-author perry claybon found is that we had an angle on the topic which wasn't quite sufficiently foregrounded and here's what i mean by that it's broadly known in the innovation literature, the creativity literature, the invention literature, that it's a well-established, empirically validated principle that the best way to get good ideas is to generate more ideas. Meaning sure. quantity is the single greatest predictor of quality. So if you want good ideas, generate lots of ideas. That is well-known. That's almost universally known and isn't questioned or anything like that. And yet nobody was emphasizing the importance of lots of ideas. If you look at the literature, or sorry, if you look at the, the, um, the library and the books that are being published, they're all about what do you do with the good idea? Um, and, what, and what we realized is no, everybody is taking as a given, I've got a good idea. No, but and some people are, are generating or are, are approaching it with the question of how do I come up with a good idea? Nobody is starting with good doesn't matter. What you need is lots. Here's how you come up with lots. And here's what you do once you have lots. Right. Well, is, that, is this more of like a brainstorming exercise to come up with ideas? Or would you say, because I know like one of the examples you bring up in the book uh, and, and, you know, when you talk about the, the concept of idea flow is your um was it you who had a the idea for the stroller up the san francisco hills and make it into like a lawnmower or was that your no no that's that's a reference to a to a friend oh oh okay well with that with that kind of concept like okay so the problem the problem would be you know it's hard to push a baby and oh like oh did i get out of i got out of you're good Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> so, so the concept would be uh, pushing up a child up the hill, right? But like, it's so hard for maybe like, it's just hard because it's a hill. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> no, no. Uh, th well, so you're kind of getting to a particular example, but what I would say, it, so, and there, there's a number of things happening in the conversation right now. So backing up, you had originally asked what inspired the book? Oh, right. What inspired the book was this observation as we start, I mean, I've interacted with hundreds, if not thousands of organizations, hundreds of entrepreneurs and large enterprises around the world, whether it's Russia, Israel, Japan, UK, you know, uh, Colombia, New Zealand, Australia, all over the world. And what I found consistently, I didn't realize it at first, nobody appreciated the importance of a volume of ideas, nobody. Everybody comes to a problem and they say, what's the answer? And you know what the truth is? There is no one is no, answer. Right. <laughs> like we're not, none of us are solving math problems, right? Math problems have one right answer. And by the way, many mathematicians will tell you, even math problems don't have one right answer, which is deeply disturbing. But the point is the, the fundamental cognitive bias we all, we all bring to the, the, the task of problem solving is I'm looking for the right answer. And what we realize is the answer is lots of possible answers. Mm -hmm. And when you realize that the answer is lots of possible answers, then you solve the problem of solving problems for good. Wow, that's quite interesting. I think, yeah, it's just hard to hard to like kind of wrap my head around. I, I think I need to let it percolate for a little bit. But there, 
essentially that there's a lot of answers and there's no correct what and right answer. It's just figuring out which one to go with. Well, the truth is there are, there are better and worse fit uh, solutions. So for example, what should you title this podcast episode? I mean, other than episode 99, you're probably going to give it a title, right? Okay. Uh -huh, yep. That's a problem. You may not have ever thought about it like a problem, but it is, it is a, maybe you treat it like a task and it's like idea flow with Jeremy Utley. Great. And you're like, good, I'm done with that. Well, if you recognize that it's a problem for which there might be like a, a like there might be a, you know, absolute best solution, mm -hmm. then you might say, well, let's try for 10 before we settle on one. Oh, okay. I like that. How do you solve the problem of solving problems for good? The biggest mistakes about, uh, or the, 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 the biggest myths uh, potential entrepreneurs believe, right? The cognitive biases holding us back from innovation. I'm just, I'm doing this activity, sure. right? But you realize all of these are potential titers for the podcast. Uh -huh. And when you, and when you approach the, th the, the question of what should we call the podcast with the, with the question of what's the answer and Earl's I'm putting you on the spot, Earl and Earl goes, call it Jeremy Utley idea flow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. And then you, you both, you, you guys both go thumbs up. Great. Next task. Right. Without any regard for whether that's the best or whether sure. you could have a better one. Right. Or think about like a subject line to an email. Uh -huh. How many times do you ever try to come up with a few before you actually, right? Like yeah, usually it's true. like you say two, <laughs> you type it in, then it goes subject. You're like, well, what do I think? Uh, it's the topic. And I type it in and I go to the body. You never even revisit it. Never mind the fact that if you knew what open rates are on current emails today, you'd spend a lot more time thinking about the subject than you think about the body. Right. True, true. But the point is, you, that stuff is testable, right? If I, and if I have an email campaign and I'm trying to, to get out the best email to a big group of people, why would I not try five different subject lines to, to small groups of 10 people each and just see who replies the most? Ah, right. Yeah. And I go, I'm going to actually call, I'm going to, I'm going to define the reply rate as the measurement of what the best subject line is. And I'm going to wait 48 hours and look at reply rates. And I go, wow, subject line number four got six responses. One, uh -huh. two, and three didn't get more than three. And subject five, nobody responded to. It's like, great. Now we're about to blast 500 people. Let's use subject line four. Right? Ah. Well, I just, like, we just used idea flow effectively to think about solving the problem of, you know, getting a high response rate to an email campaign. Right? I hear you. No, that's that's great. I've got to try that out, and and I'm gonna come up with ten different, maybe maybe handful of different episode titles for this, and we're gonna pick one. Up one of the biggest things I would say, one of the biggest things I would say, you know, it'd be fun. By the way, here's oh, okay, I've never sure. done this, but but you have my permission to do it if you want to. Okay. Um, and then, well, so there's <laughs> so a there's, there's a podcast thing, and then there's something else. I'm gonna say the something else so I don't forget it. And then I'm gonna come back to the podcast. The something else is most people don't realize that they've got a problem on their hands. The, the reason that idea flow isn't relevant to you, you know, um, uh, or obviously relevant to you is because you don't go, you know, what's a problem? What should I call this podcast? As long mm -hmm. as that's not a problem, you don't see it as a, as a, as a um, candidate for idea flow. The moment you see it as a problem, and that's how we say it in the book, right? Every problem is an idea problem, but it's only pro as long as I see it as a task. 
I don't think in terms of volume. I don't think in terms of testing, right? When I see it as a problem, i.e. something that I don't know what the right answer is, then all of a sudden I unlock this tool set. Now, going back to the podcast, what I was going to say, and, and then I've, I, unfortunately I've got to go. Um, but what I was going to say is if you really wanted to know what the best subject line is uh, sure. for even for this podcast, and you could try this, you could have some fun with it if you want. Use the same underlying, and, and by the way, if listeners hear this, they'll they'll discover the reason that perhaps the um, the podcast is named funny here. I'll say that now. Okay, okay. You could post this conversation five different times, but with five different titles, like post uh -huh. the file five uh -huh. different times under five different titles over the course of five weeks, right? And then- See which one gets the most audience engagement. See which one gets the most downloads and the most shares and the most replies, right? And the most reviews. And then pull down the other four in two months. Like like on LinkedIn or like Instagram or any of yeah, those. Why not, right? Yeah. TikTok. Because yeah, whatever. ultimately, ultimately, if you're going for shareability, right. increase the number of kind of, of, of feelers that you put out there in the world before you before you commission the one that you say we're putting all our hopes on this one. I like that. That's that's innovative. Um, well, Jeremy, you how much you got? Five minutes, or we just asked you the last two, one one minute. What is your startup mindset, Jeremy? That's the last question we always ask. <laughs> okay, say more about that, or tell tell me a little bit more. Yeah. So, um, is it basically just your mindset? Well, I would say mine is do what you love and make it. It's kind of like your philosophy or your mindset um, for you know for for you starting up. A company or the cheeky <laughs> answer, the cheeky answer is, of course, I just wrote a book about that called Idea Fly. I hope people will read it. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, I think my if I had to encapsulate it lately, it's always we're always changing and growing. Right. Mm -hmm. If I had to encapsulate it now, what I would probably say is something to the effect of. Give yourself permission to deviate. Nice. There's a very narrow path for what people think smart people do. And unbeknownst to us, we never deviate from that path. We sit down and do email all day, every day, because why? <laughs> That's what productive people do, right? But what I have found is I've studied the history of invention and innovation and discovery is phenomenally prolific people did stuff that I don't ever have time for, you know? Joyce Carol Oates walks up the hill behind her house all the time to find ideas, right? Um, uh, Igor Stravinsky would do handstands when he got stuck. Einstein would play his violin. You know, Maya Angelou refuses to, to work in a pretty space because it throws her, right? And on and on and on, right? And, and so to me, I feel that most people in this kind of hyper-productive, hyper-efficient environment that in which we live have very narrow definitions of what you know, good work looks like. And I would like to broaden that definition or at least give people permission to deviate from that narrow path. That's amazing. Great. And then maybe my, my last question, Jeremy, is if you had to give advice to your 18 or 90 year old self, what would that be? No, I think ask, ask, ask Michelle to marry you earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Great. 
Thank you. Thanks, Jeremy. For Guys, please, please um, feel free to, you know, uh, one, we've got a bonus chapter on our website called How to Think Like Bezos and Jobs. It's totally free. So if folks okay. want to check it out, go to ideaflow.design or jeremyeltley.design. You can grab it there. Um, folks can subscribe. I try to blog every day. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. And I'm happy to promote the episode, especially... And if you want to try like uh, experimentation, you know, do idea flow on the episode. It'd be super cool. I'm happy to support. Yeah, sure. We'll we'll, uh, make sure to do that. And uh, I'll just email you uh, 